You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Twitter and Facebook have made everyone aware of social networks, but not many realise that social network theory predates them by decades. Later, we'll hear how doctors have been leveraging the power of these networks to improve health for years. Um, it may, in fact, be entirely inappropriate to try and engineer somebody's social network in a public space where there are many corporate interests who might be snooping. But first, the increased risk of cancer from CT scans has been modelled from data gathered from the survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. However, new BMJ research, based on a large Australian cohort, offers new evidence to support the modelling. Earlier this week, I talked to one of the researchers, John Matthews, who's a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne, to find out more. So yes, as I said before, you know, people have been aware that there is probably an increased risk of cancer in patients who've received CT scans. Where did that data come from? How had that sort of been modelled? Well, in the past, most of our knowledge of radiation risks has come from the follow-up of the atomic bomb cohorts in Japan. Mm-hmm. And the average doses there were considerably higher than the doses of radiation you get from a CT scan. But um, David Brenner in New York and other people uh, took those estimates and sort of said, well, if the risk is proportional to dose, even at the doses from CT scans, you might expect there to be an effect. Um, But up until very recently, people were very sceptical about whether we could actually measure at the low doses CT scans deliver an actual detectable effect. And it wasn't until uh, a study done in the UK by Mark Pearson colleagues, uh, they studied 180,000 people who'd had CT scans and found that the risk of leukaemia and brain cancer increased with the dose of radiation, Mm. but they didn't have a big enough uh, population to find uh, increases of risk of cancers other than brain cancer and leukaemia. And our study, we we actually looked at 680,000 people who'd had CT scans and compared their risk of cancer subsequently with the risk in over 10 million people of similar age who hadn't had CT scans. And we were able to show an increase um, in those who were exposed compared to those who weren't exposed after allowing for any minor differences in uh, age of exposure, age of follow-up, sex and year of birth and so forth. And so on, yes. Um, now, as you say, you've, you had uh, over 10 million people uh, in the overhaul cohort. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about where you got that data from? Yes. Um, one of the reasons we've been able to do the study is that Australia um, has a publicly funded system for funding most medical services carried out in uh, community and private practice which is called Medicare, and uh, the administrative details allowed us to identify the CT scan exposures in the Australian population, and we're then able to link that information to 
the Australian National Cancer Index, which mm. is maintained by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare in Canberra. And is that fairly comprehensive data? Yes, the uh, National Cancer Registry is believed to be complete from about 1982, but we would have missed some CT scan exposures because they were carried out in state-based tertiary hospitals and they're funded directly by the states and not through the Medicare system. Uh, but we, because we would have caught any cancers amongst those people without catching the exposures, if anything, those missing CT scans would have led us to underestimate the magnitude of CT scan in causing increased cancer risk. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned your results earlier, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a second. But um, just a little bit about some of the, the confounding factors that may have come into this and how you dealt with that. Um, if we start with the CT scans themselves, your cohort study ran from 1985 to 2005. So in that time, the technology may have changed quite considerably. How did you take account of that kind of change? Well, we weren't able to take account of it completely, but um, we used our best estimates of what radiation dosage would have been from CT scans over that period. Mm -hmm. There are some suggestions in the data that perhaps in the early years the doses were bigger than expected, but the simplest measure of dose that we were able to look at was just to count the number of CTs. And, and there's a very nice relationship with an increasing risk of cancer uh, according to increasing number of CTs. Uh, the average increase in risk in the people we followed was 24%. There were 24% more cancers in exposed people than non-exposed. And for every single CT scan, the risk increased by 16%. And the reason why uh, the 24% average is greater than 16% is that a number of people had multiple scans. Now, the second big sort of confounder here is what's called reverse causality. Um, obviously, CT scans could lead to an increased rate of cancer because of the ionising radiation. But conversely, people who have cancer already have got, may go for CT scans. So how did you, you know, how did you model get around that? Well, uh, the, the simplest thing was to say, well, we'll ignore any CT scan that happened less than 12 months before the diagnosis of cancer. And we also did two other analyses where we allowed a five-year lag, in other words, ignoring all CT scans were less than five years before the diagnosis of cancer. And we also allowed a 10-year lag and uh, uh, ignoring all scans that were less than 10 years before the diagnosis date. And with the five-year and 10-year lags, we found very similar results, even though the number of excess cancers was less because, uh, as you'd expect, with less exposures, there were less uh, cancers. Uh, but the results are very consistent. And although we can't say we've excluded all possibility of reverse causation, we believe it can only explain a very small proportion of what we've uh, found. Okay. We're pretty confident that we're measuring a real effect here. And of course, the other generic argument is that our results line up very closely with the predictions based on 
what you might expect from the lifespan study of the atomic bomb cohorts in Japan. You said that there's a a 24% increased risk of overall cancer. How did that break down by cancer type? Was there a difference between solid cancers and other maybe uh, hematopoietic cancers? Even although our study was very large, there were only one or two cancers where we didn't find an increase, but we don't have quite enough data to be able to say this cancer has increased more than that cancer. In other words, you know, even though it's a very large study, uh, we need longer periods of follow-up and we're planning to extend the follow-up to the end of 2012. That'll give us another five years of follow-up. Your results confirm what's kind of been known already for a while with a bit of uh, uh, argument going on around it. But what do you think this means now for clinicians? Because... Um, CT scans are still a, a vital part of diagnoses, so you know we can't stop doing it tomorrow. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, uh, of course, I think the message for clinicians is they they just need to take on board that the procedure is not risk-free, and they need to be more critical in deciding whether or not a CT scan is needed. I mean, UK seems to have probably got it right in the sense that uh, the population usage of CT scans per person is lower in the UK than in Australia. Australia is lower than the USA and the USA is lower than Japan. They can't all be kind of doing it at the right rate. So think then scan, don't scan then think. (laughs) I guess that's that's the message. Mm -hmm. John Matthews, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks Duncan. And that article is available online on bmj.com. Now, social media is relatively new. But did you realise that doctors have been using social networks to improve health for centuries? Enrico Coyera, director of the Centre for Health Informatics at the University of New South Wales, has written an analysis article for the BMJ explaining how that works and how, in the digital age, we might try and use virtual networks to do the same job on a much larger scale. So, Enrico, thank you for taking the time to talk to us this morning. It's my pleasure to join you. Social media has exploded, and it's given people this idea of of thinking about social networks. But social network theory isn't new, is it? That's right. Um, Social network theory is... um something that has been around for many decades and has arisen out of social psychology. Really, they were trying to understand how we quantify our our social nature and the impact of um, social groups on on behaviours and beliefs and norms. And so social networks really are a way of representing the ties between us and the strength of the ties, whether it's between families or friends or, or loose acquaintances, and trying to quantify the impact of those ties on the things we believe and do. Mm. So if we talk about beliefs, because I believe that's the way that uh, these sorts of have been traditionally looked at, and we take an example, perhaps MMR, and the way that swept through social networks. I mean, has that been looked at and studied and quantified in some way? Uh, I I think it's something that is still to be looked at. But uh, what we do know is that these sorts of beliefs propagate Um, not as we would expect uh, through just the strong relationships we have, but we are um, influenced by what are called weak social ties. And really the big breakthrough in um, original thinking around social networks was the realisation that these weak ties, which are 
the people you see at the school gate, um, the people you might chat to at the shops, actually are very influential in our beliefs, um, as, of course, are people in power. Um, one of the things that um, social network analysts look at are the structure of networks, and um, what they look at is for um, which people um, are most central to the network and are most influential. And it's very clear that, for example, people who... Um, are very central to a network, have many connections to many people, and these are the people who surprisingly can be quite strongly influential. So we even know in healthcare, for example, we talk in terms of the impact of leaders, uh, clinical leaders on, on change, and these are the people who are central in the networks for their craft groups, for example. But more recently, people have been thinking about how not just beliefs but other things might propagate through the through social networks, um, and we've seen papers on happiness. And in your examples, you say that even something like obesity seems to propagate through as well. It's, it's a remarkable idea, isn't it, that um, all these major illnesses, which we've always thought of as non-communicable, actually, in a sense, really are communicable. Uh, nobody is saying that you can catch obesity from a contact. Um, but what we are saying is that the people around us in our social groupings um, shape the, our behaviours. And for many of these diseases or, or disease states like obesity, um, we are shaped by the people around us. It's a very central question in social networks is to understand how beliefs associate. And there's a central idea, I don't want to get too technical, called mm -hmm. homophily, the notion that when you look at a social network, um, birds of a feather flock together. And uh, the question really is whether in a social network those people are together because they are similar and nobody else wants to be with them or whether um, they were different at the beginning and then all coalesced on a common right. behavioral norm. And, and, and with something like obesity, that's a very important question. So um, uh, uh, two very uh, important uh, researchers from um, uh, the US, Christakis and Fala, got their hands on the very famous um, Framingham data set, mm, um, mm -hmm. which looked at about three decades of people longitudinally, um, and were able to reconstruct the social networks of these people uh, over time, and were able to show that um, knowing people who are obese in the end was causal with your obesity, and from memory they were saying something like, for each obese contact you had in your social network, your chance of obesity increased by half a percent. Um, so it's it's both that people of, uh, of birds of a feather flock together, but it's also the second notion of social mm. contagion that um, we try and be similar to the people in our group. And obviously that is a way that people must be very interested in tackling some of these social diseases by trying to, to influence um, these social networks. So is there any work going on trying to actually do that? Is there anywhere being successful in it? Yeah, so because we're talking about not social media but just traditional social networks, there in fact is, again, a long history of what some people call network therapy, the idea that the unit of treatment is not the patient but the patient's social network. Um, and um, most of the work um, really has come, out again, out of the area of substance abuse. Another classic example is, is Alcoholics Anonymous where we artificially engineer a social network and give give somebody who has an alcohol problem the opportunity to re-engage with, with a more supportive group where they can model different norms and change their behaviours. 
what's exciting and I think um, really the motivation behind the paper is to say, look, we actually have an interesting moment in time where we now are starting to understand the essential social nature of some very major diseases. And at the very same moment, we are now um, playing with um, social um, media. And these are the sorts of technologies like Twitter and Facebook, which I think a lot of people dismiss as time-wasting. But it's very clear that these may well be the sorts of technologies which we can actually reapply in a, in a very prospective, thoughtful way to help engineer in, in the information space um, what um, uh, traditional clinicians have been doing uh, face-to-face over, over the last few decades. Uh, talking about Facebook, um, it's quite interesting that they floated last year for, what, $104 billion, and then now about a third's been wiped off their share price because advertisers think that perhaps you know, they aren't able to, to leverage these social networks for their own ends to, to sell products. Um, presumably the same would go for any health messages getting out through them. That's a, a very important question. I think it's very important for us to differentiate um, examples of social networks in the public domain, and Facebook or Twitter are examples of businesses that are trying either successfully or unsuccessfully to make a pound or a dollar or a euro out of that. Yeah. Uh, and the more essential idea, which is that we are able to create social networks in the digital space and that they can influence behavior. And so um, it may, in fact, be entirely inappropriate to try and engineer somebody's social network in a public space where there are many corporate interests who might be snooping. It might end up that we engineer very different interventions in healthcare, um, which might be small disease-specific networks which are closed, um, in which people enrol with consent, um, and, and in which we create, for example, um, buddies or role models who, who add into the group, who can act as um, behavioural um, models. A bit and, like and you do might... for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, um, or perhaps uh, Weight Watchers or something at the moment. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and doing that in a way which is effective. So I think um, sometimes it's crucial to separate the idea from the real-world instances we have now. Enrico, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.